Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 19, where we're going to be looking at the parable of the minas. And uh, if you have the King James Version, it's the parable of the pounds, but uh, it's, uh, it's really the minas. And if you're thinking, what of the mina, you're going to find out in a little bit. I don't know about you, but I love a good murder mystery that has a really complicated plot, or a really smart murderer. And uh, what I like to do, as soon as it starts, I, I like to try and figure out at the very beginning, as soon as I can, who did it and their motive and how it was done. And, uh, and sometimes, I mean, I just like the, the characters barely get introduced. And I say, I think this person did it because of this. And uh, I'm always looking for, you know, those words from my wife, which were immortalized by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, brilliant deduction homes. Um, that's like, you know, it's really cool when, you know, two hours later, my wife says, you were right. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often, but uh, if you like murder mysteries, you will like the, the text before us because it is complex. It has a lot of twists and turns and a lot of things to try and figure out. Jesus is in Jericho at Zacchaeus's house, the chief tax collector who has just come to saving faith in Christ. His life has been transformed by God's grace. Jericho is 18 miles down into the Jordan Rift from Jericho. It's about one day's walk. Soon Jesus will leave. Maybe that day, if it's morning, he will walk up to the hill to Jerusalem and he will walk in in his triumphal entry, which means he'll be dead within five days. And so it's right at the end of Jesus' life. And as Jesus has been traveling, he's got his group of disciples with him. He's got uh, true disciples, those who actually believe in him, and some professing disciples who follow him because they want to learn from him, but they haven't really committed. And this is apparent because all the way through Jesus's ministry, there are people who kind of were clinging to him as disciples and then departed when Jesus would say hard words. John chapter 6 records such an occasion. Not only that, there are a bunch of people from Jericho who are there. Why? A couple reasons. Because he healed blind Bartimaeus and because they're amazed at Zacchaeus' conversion and he's probably done other miracles that aren't recorded. Not only that, it's Passover. And so there's Jews from all over the Mediterranean world, especially on the other side of the Jordan, because where they would cross is right by Jericho. There was a good place to cross. And so there are a lot of people funneling in through Jericho. And those people, seeing the great crowd following Jesus, probably attached themselves to this huge entourage who is now at Zacchaeus's house, has just seen the chief tax collector say, I'm parting from my money for the glory of God. And they're really amazed. Now to help us solve the mystery, our sidekicks are the illumination of the Holy Spirit, our knowledge of the Bible, and good Bible study principles. We're going to have a little three prongs. It's a very simplified, but this helps you if you're going to study a parable. One, discover the situation or need which gave rise to the parable. Jesus always told parables to address a situation or need in the context. Secondly, interpret the details properly because not all the details in a parable have a spiritual parallel. You need to remember that because if you make everything have a spiritual parallel, you turn the parable into an allegory. 
And it's not an allegory. And third, you make sure that when you get to the end and you say this parable is about X, Y, or Z, and there's this punchline at the end, that that punchline matches the situation or need. And if it doesn't, then you either got the interpretation wrong or you missed the reason why the parable was given. So please follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because... He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given money be called to him so that they might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man and you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, master, he, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. This is a sobering parable. And what I want to do is just extract four questions. And by answering those four questions, hopefully we'll gain an understanding of the parable, its meaning, its interpretation, and its application for our lives today. So the game is underfoot. And the first question is, do you recognize the situation or need in the parable? Look at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Who are the they? All these people who have gathered, gathered at Zacchaeus's house that I just described. True disciples, pretending disciples, opposing Jews, opposing Pharisees, and curious onlookers. Because of the transformation in Zacchaeus's life, many have been drawn here. And now, though, they think, you know what? If this guy can do miracles, if this guy can, you know, heal the blind man, if this guy can do that to Zacchaeus, maybe he is the Messiah and maybe he should establish his kingdom. And they're all for for that. They're a very fickle crowd. And so some of them expect that Jesus might even establish his kingdom. And this is the situation which at the end we'll see is addressed perfectly in every aspect by the parable itself. Second, do you see what the disciples expected? Look at the middle of verse 11. They supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately after his conversion, after Zacchaeus 
um, was transformed, and after they had seen at least blind Bartimaeus be healed, maybe other miracles that aren't recorded, they suppose that the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately, like right now. This guy's got power. He's got a movement. He's got a crowd. Let's get up there and make him king and have him beat up Rome and drive him back out of our country. Now, you need to realize that the Jews were pre-millennialists. That is, they believed the Messiah would come before, pre, his kingdom, and then establish his millennium, his reign on the earth. This is what the prophets predicted would happen. You can see this even after Jesus died and was resurrected. If you turn over to Acts chapter 1, turn to Acts chapter 1. This is right before Jesus ascends. He's, he's died. He's been resurrected. He's appeared to the disciples for a while. And he's just getting ready to launch off in plain sight. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says this. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And I just want to stop right here and say, notice what Jesus talks to them about when he is resurrected. Yeah, I just find this fascinating that Jesus dies on the cross, is resurrected from the dead, and for 40 days he talks to them about what? The kingdom of God. You know, a lot of times I hear people say things like, well, prophecy is not that big a deal. I believe in the pan millennia view. It's just going to pan out in the end. <laughs> you know, that it, it, we're just going to, it's just too complex. Listen, it may be complex, but it's important. It's what Jesus talked about after his resurrection. You see the same thing like in, in when Paul goes to the Thessalonica church, he, he plants the church there. And what does he teach them? Prophecy. He refers to it all the way through First and Second Thessalonians about the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord, that he's constantly teaching them about that. Why? Because it's important. It's not some minor issue. It's an important issue. It encompasses about a third of the scriptures. And so that's what Jesus talked to them about. Look at verse 4. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are storing the kingdom of Israel? Notice it's the same basic phrase, isn't it? Is it happening now? Well, why did they say that? Well, they, they, they've got a clue at this point. Okay, okay, we get it. You had to die. You had to die for our sins and rise again. And you've done all that. So is it the kingdom right now? And Jesus doesn't say, no, you've got it all wrong. I'm not coming back to establish my kingdom. He just tells them, no, it's not for the time for you to know when I will return to establish my kingdom. And then two angels appear when Jesus begins to ascend into heaven. Look at verse 11. And they say, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the way, same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In other words, how did Jesus depart? He departed physically, bodily from the Mount of Olives into heaven in plain sight. How will he return from heaven in plain sight to the Mount of Olives in a bodily form? This is discussed in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, where it says his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives when he returns. He will split the mountain in two. And so Jesus will come to earth on the Mount of Olives, on that very spot. Just like the angel said, it was predicted, and that's what will happen. 
And as we shall see, their expectation of Jesus establishing his kingdom plays a part in the parable before us too. Okay, thirdly, do you understand the details properly? And this is where it gets a little complicated because when you're studying a parable, you have to decide what has a spiritual parallel and what doesn't. What should we kind of say represents something else and what doesn't? And uh, you can go crazy on this where everything is a representative of something. But then, of course, you kind of turn it into an allegory if you do that, not a parable. But look at verse 12 and let's work through it. He says, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Well, who was the nobleman? If you study the, the parable, who's the master? The Lord, the nobleman, the king. It is Jesus. Yeah, so that's pretty easy. And as we go through the parable, that will become even emphatically clear. But we need to stop here and take a little excursion on some history and geography fascinating facts. This is, uh, this is one of the cool things about studying the Bible. It's a cool thing about going to Israel. If you've never been to Israel, you need to go. You need to go. Um, as a matter of fact, I think we should all go to Israel. We just take the whole church and just go over there and uh, go to Ibex for six months and then come back and we'll have a clue. But uh, until that happens, let me just tell you a little bit about Roman rule. All kings were given the right to rule by Caesar. And so if you were, were a king, you were a king because you went to Rome, stood before Caesar. Caesar gave you the title of king, the territory you could rule as king, and sent you back to rule. And this was common knowledge to all who are listening. Of specific common knowledge was what happened when Herod the Great died. You remember what happened? Um, Herod the Great was the Herod who tried to kill the baby Jesus when he was born. Herod the Great was one who had multiple sons. One of his sons was Herod Antipas. And Antipas, he said, could be king. But then right before his death, he said Archelaus could be king. And then he died. Well, this then sent Archelaus into a power rage trying to prove that he was as powerful as his father. And so he decided to slaughter 3,000 Jews in the Temple Mount area. Of course, this bloodthirsty act did not set well with the Jews and the rest of Herod's family. And soon Archelaus set sail for Rome to receive his kingdom from Caesar, having demonstrated he was tough. By slaughtering all those Jews. Uh, Many of his family decided to go with him. And they said, oh, we want to go with you to see you be appointed as king. But it was all in pretense because their plan was as soon as they get there to oppose him to Caesar's face, his own family. And that is exactly what happened. They opposed him and all argued that he shouldn't be king. And a delegation of 50 Jews from Jerusalem also came and said, we don't want this man reigning over us. And they all pleaded with Caesar not to make Archelaus king and gave their reasons. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, recalls all of this, records all of this in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 17, chapter 9. Caesar, after considering these things, decided to make Archelaus not king, but Ethnarch, which you think, what's that? It's not a title we hear very much anymore. It's really a very powerful political ruler. For all intents and purposes, it's kind of a king, but he didn't give him the title because he knew he wanted the title really bad. Remember, Herod loved to be called king of the Jews, and Archelaus wanted to be king of the Jews too, but Caesar said, no, I will make you ruler over half of Herod's 
kingdom, your father Herod's kingdom. And the other half, I'm going to divide up to your other, your two brothers, which would be Philip and Antipas. And they were given the title Tetrarch, which means ruler of a fourth. Well, you can imagine how this eked Archelaus, he was the powerful, he had the larger territory, so he was the, he was the prominent ruler. He was still very powerful and pretty much could do what he wanted. He went back and then took vengeance on all those who opposed his rulership. He spent his life making their life miserable and or come to an end. And everybody knew this. This was clear history that the Jews who were very fanatic about history all knew about. Now, it just so happened that Herod the Great was a great builder. And one of the things he built was this palace on this mountaintop, this hill overlooking a city. It was a winter palace. And he would go there when it got cooler in Jerusalem because this place was warm even in the winter. And that place was Jericho. So Herod builds this place and Archelaus, when he becomes king, totally remodels it. So when Jesus is there in Jericho at Zacchaeus's house with this huge multitude of people, he's probably saying a ruler and he points upon the hill to Herod's place. And the parable before us matches the historical count pretty much perfectly Except that Jesus is no ungodly tyrant. He says in verse 12, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And all present were tracking with him. Except Jesus, unlike Archelaus, is no tyrant. He was a king at his birth, yet he came the first time for sins. The second time he will come in glory to establish his kingdom on earth. This is made clear in many texts, such as Zechariah 14.9, where it says, right after the text you read, that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It says, the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. And the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Look at verse 13. And he called ten of his slaves. So who are the slaves? Well, this is pretty easy, too. If you know your Bible, if you read your Bible, you discover that Christians are often referred to as Slaves, we have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We are slaves of Christ. The fact that Jesus is our Lord makes us his slave. That he's our master makes us his slave. That he is our king, we are his slaves. And this is a term, doulos, which is used over and over in the New Testament. Now, depending on what version you have, some people wanting to be politically correct and trying to stay away from the negative stigma of slave have translated that word slave servants instead of just what it means, slave. It's because they probably haven't studied theology and they don't realize that everybody's a slave. People talk about slavery having been abolished. No, you're either a slave of Satan or you're a slave of Christ. That's it. You're in one of those two camps and everybody is in one of those two camps. So we're all slaves to somebody in a spiritual sense. And the King James Version, for instance, wanting to kind of escape from the negative stigma of being a slave, it's very hard if you're a nobleman, if you're a lord or a lady, having a Bible that says you need to be a slave to Jesus. That just doesn't set well. So they just translated it servant. Every single occurrence, even though there's a couple hundred, except for one. Once the King James Version actually translates it slave. The New King James Version 
translated it slaves 30 times. The English Standard Version, 44 times. The New American Standard Version, 130 times. But there's only a couple of translations, obscure ones today, that translated it slave every time. And it describes a person who has been bought, who has been purchased, whose will is in total submission to somebody else's to do what that other person wants. Their Lord, their master, their king. Therefore, it's pretty easy to guess that the slaves in the parable represent professing believers. And you say, well, why just professing believers? Why not just believers? Because there's two categories of them. Those who invest for the king and one who doesn't, who is described as worthless and is judged. And so look at the middle of verse 13. And he gave them, each of the slaves, 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. They didn't each receive 10 minas. The 10 minas were distributed among 10 slaves. This is clear because they each say, I have a mina and this is what I got from my single mina. So there must have been 10 slaves. A mina was about three months worth of wages. So it was a pretty good sum. And you might ask, so, so what do the minas represent? Well, you could say they represent what God has given us financially, and certainly that's true, right? But I think it represents everything God gives us. Everything you have has been given to you by God, right? All that you own is God's. All all your gifts, your talents, the country you're born, the education you have, the opportunities you receive, they're all given to you by God. And so everything you have can either be used for God's glory or used for selfish purposes. And the question is, what are you doing with what God has entrusted to you. Health, intellect, education, time, skills, talents, gifts, everything you have. And remember Paul, how he had to kind of rebuke the Corinthians and first Corinthians four, seven. And they were saying, well, you know, I'm boasting in this and I'm boasting in that. And he says, listen, for who regards you as superior? He said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast As if you had not received it. You know, if I'm, let's say, a great painter, well, who gave me that skill? God. Who gives me my life? God. Who kind of made me and my brain so that I could be a great painter? God. It's all about God. Well, what if I'm a great architect? Who, 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 who let me get that education? Who gave me that skill? Who gave me that, that ability? God. And so God gives us everything we have. And we are to invest it for him. I don't know about you, but it's a favorite pastime of many to ponder what they would do with what they don't have. (laughs) Do you ever find yourself doing that? You know, where you say to yourself like, um, man, if I had a million dollars, you ever do that? I don't know why you're laughing. You're smiling. Um, Why do you do that? Because if you had that, I would be, listen, It doesn't matter. God doesn't care what you do with what you don't have. (laughs) He only cares what you do with what you do have. And he wants you to use what you do have for his glory, for God honoring purposes, to invest in eternity. He realizes you have to eat and you need to get around and you have needs. But in the midst of all that, he wants you using what you have for his glory. And not just for yourself. He doesn't want you procrastinating for some nebulous future when you say, well, maybe next paycheck. 
you know, maybe when work quiet down, quiets down a bit, then I can, you know, as soon as my kids get older, there's always an excuse, isn't there? There's always an excuse to not invest in eternity. But somehow some people are always vesting in eternity and they have the same challenges. It's not your situation. It's you. And soon you're lying in bed and you've got all these tubes stuck in you. You're getting ready to pass into eternity. And you're laying there unable to speak, thinking, I wasted my life. I didn't invest in eternity. And I gave my years to the cruel one. Hear me, procrastinator. Every good tree bears good fruit. I need you to be careful that you aren't into this wrong thought of thinking, man, I need to get with it. I need to get with it. I, I, I need to, I need to study my Bible more. I need to attend church more faithfully. I need to give more to religious causes. Listen, if you don't know Christ as your savior, not know that Christ is the savior, but know him as your savior, nothing you ever do pleases God ever. No matter how religious you are, no matter how much money you give, no matter how hard you serve, if you don't know Jesus, it counts for nothing, nothing at all. There's only two categories of people in this parable before us, the saints and the ain'ts. There is no middle category. There's no middle category of citizen or slave who doesn't invest in eternity, but then is rewarded for what they didn't do. That that category does not exist. That is a a delusion, a wishful thinking. As the Irish would say, it's, it's a bunch of Balarney. And you're flattering yourself to hell if you believe it. For it is not true. It is a lie from the pit. Jesus' sheep hear his voice and they follow him. The saving grace of God makes you want to follow Jesus. It doesn't just put you into a category and then you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and make it happen. The nobleman said to his slave, do business with this until I come back. And so Jesus has left and everything you have and everything that I have is all to be used for his glory, for God glorifying purposes. And he's going to come back. And we have to give an account. Charles Spurgeon makes several good observations concerning the slaves. He says, one, they believe the nobleman would return. That's why they invested. Secondly, though absent, they lived as if the nobleman was their king. And third, they lived as if the king were already present, even though he was absent. Then there are the citizens. Look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They, they couldn't help. They couldn't help. But looking at Herod's palace there up above the hill overlooking Jerusalem, they couldn't help but be thinking of the 50 Jews who went to Rome to protest Archelaus becoming king saying, we don't want this man reigning over us. It was an exact parallel. 
And in a few days, Jesus will be on trial. The religious leaders will work the crowd to crowd for Jesus to be crucified. It's very probable that some of the people present right now in this huge mass of people will be crying out for Jesus' death five days from then. In John chapter 19, verses 14 and 15, Speaking of Jesus' trial, it says, Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. In other words, We do not want this man reigning over us. And even though the sign on Jesus' cross testified in multiple languages, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the Jews wanted Pilate to remove it, but he said, what I have written, I have written. They didn't want him reigning over them as king. Look at verse 15. And when he returned, the nobleman, he returns after receiving the kingdom. He ordered that the slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that they might now might know what business they had done. So now he's coming back. He has come back and he wants to give an account. And you know what? You're going to give an account. I'm going to give an account. That's what the scriptures say. Second Corinthians 510, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's you. That's me. Jesus will want to know how you used the resources he gave you, whether you invested them in eternity or not. Look at verses 16 and 17. The first appeared saying, The master, your mind has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You shall be an authority over ten cities. The first slave makes a thousand percent profit, puts him over ten cities. Secondly, look at verses 18 to 19. The second came saying, Your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. This slave made a 500% profit and was entrusted with the five cities to rule notice the responsibilities in the kingdom are proportional to how faithful they are in this life to invest for the king while he is absent i mean are you catching this this is pretty clear isn't it jesus is absent now if you are a christian you are a slave you've been entrusted with things to give him glory are you using it to give him glory or not that's the point And realize that your faithfulness in serving the Lord in this life will determine your heavenly responsibilities in Jesus' kingdom. What you do now affects eternity. Thus, the slaves who invested in the king's money represent believers who use their resources for the glory of God. But there was another kind of slave. Look at verses 20 and 21. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man, and you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. This slave was paralyzed with fear, and so he disobeyed the king. Even though the king said, I want you to do this, he said no. And even though he could have just taken the money and put it in a bank, a safe place to make the king some money, he didn't do that either. And his words reveal that he really didn't believe either the king's words or that the king would return or something, because he says, I know that you are an exacting man, and yet he doesn't prepare for that exacting man's return. So something's wrong here. He refuses to obey. And this person, I believe, represents the professing believer who doesn't really know the Lord. Oh, they may come to church. 
They may go through some motions. They may serve a little, give a little, attend a little. But really, they don't love the Lord. They don't know Christ. They aren't investing in eternity. They're tares among the wheat and hidden reefs in the church. Goats among the sheep. And on judgment day, they will be separated. And it will be discovered that nothing they did will have been done for Christ's glory. Look down at verses 22 and 23. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I'm exacting man, taking what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And these are solemn words for many who sit in church on Sunday morning, but never do anything. I plead with you, if you are a mere pew sitter, And you don't really want to give and you don't really want to serve. You don't really want to share your faith and you don't really want to be involved in the church and have other people involved in your life. You need to turn to Christ in faith. You need to throw yourself at the feet of the king and believe that he died for you. He suffered for you. He was buried and resurrected for your justification and that you through faith in him can receive the free gift of eternal life and quit pretending to be what you're not. Sitting week by week at church doesn't prove you're a Christian. It just makes you more accountable to God because to whom more is given, more is required. And you're getting all this teaching week by week and you're just heaping up condemnation on yourself. You don't want to hear what those people heard in Matthew chapter seven and that Jesus describes many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, they declare by calling Jesus, Lord, Lord, we're slaves, we're slaves. And then Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That is scary to think that you could think you were a slave of Jesus and do all these things all your life, all these religious deeds, and yet not know the Savior. Know about the Savior, know who the Savior is, maybe know the gospel, maybe know doctrine and theology, but you don't know Christ. And because you don't know Christ, nothing you do gives glory to God because you can't have a relationship with God until you have a relationship with Christ and have his blood covering you and your sins. Could that be you? If you look at your life, are you investing in eternity? Have you been investing in eternity? Just look back a month, six months, a year. Can you say, I live in such a way that I use my resources for the glory of God? And if not, please don't try to fortify yourself and resolve to do better. Please Don't try to make a plan to sanctify yourself, to become more religious so that you can assure yourself you're on your way to heaven. If you do that, you will be merely trying to fix the symptom of the real problem. And the real problem is you don't know Christ. You say, well, Pastor Jack, that's kind of harsh. I mean, come on. Are you trying to tell me that if I'm not investing in eternity, I don't know Jesus? You're the worthless slave. You're going to be judged. I mean, isn't that what Jesus says here? That's exactly what he says here. And I know Satan is probably whispering in your ear right now. Oh, you're a Christian. You are a Christian. You already know Christ. You know the gospel. 
You may not be following Jesus, but listen. All you need to do is just do a little self-reform. Start investing in eternity. But whatever you do, don't doubt your salvation. He wants you to be comfortable thinking you're saved when you're not. Don't listen to him. Salvation is not a mere profession of faith. It is life transformation. And this is what's so difficult. If you don't know Christ, you just can't figure it out. Why is this person so excited about the Bible? Why is this person so excited about giving and serving and sharing their faith? And I'm not. What is wrong with me? I'm a Christian. No. Because if you were, God's grace would be in you. The Holy Spirit would be in you. You would become a new creature in Christ. You would be as if you were born again. You would be transformed by his grace so that you would want to obey Jesus. Want to serve Jesus want to tell people about Jesus because you love Jesus. That's what saving grace does in a person's life. It doesn't just make you a church attender. And I am so fearful that some of you could come week by week and just think, yeah, one of these days I got to get my act together. You can't get your act together. You must have grace to make you get your act together. And then you'll want to serve the king. You'll be standing in line and that person will be there and you go, I got to share Christ with him. I got to tell him about Jesus. You kind of get that psychotic look in your eye. <laughs> and all of a sudden you feel your carotid artery start to thump and you say, I'm, I'm dropping the bomb. You know, do you know that? Do you know that? But if you think, man, I'm not telling him. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not love for the Lord. That's a not desire to tell people about Christ, to obey him, to follow him, to declare him. John writes in 1 John 3, verses 9 and 10, No one who is born of God practices sin because a seed abides him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. You say, well, so what's happening here? Because when you're saved, God's seed, the Holy Spirit abides in you. And because the Holy Spirit is in you, you want to practice righteousness. Now, do you? No, but you want to. And when you fail, you're convicted and you think, man, I got to get my act together. I got to go. I got to confess my sins. I'm going back, man. I'm trying again. And you're on a progression. There is a trajectory towards heaven. There is a focus towards eternity. And you're not just living for this world and the things and temporary pleasures. Look at verse 24. And then he said to the bystanders, who are the bystanders? You know what? I don't think they're anybody in particular. Um, I mean, they could be angels or they could be some of the slaves. They do call him master. So they're either slaves or angels, but they don't seem to play a critical part. And so whether you want to say they're slaves that are standing around or angels, that's fine. Look at the middle of verses 24 and uh, through 26. Take away the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given. The one who does not have even what he does have shall be taken away. There's a couple things to learn here. First, learn here that those who do not invest in eternity lose all. If you don't invest for eternity, you lose all. All pleasure, all friendship, all comfort, all possessions, your soul, everything. You just enter hell unclothed and bitter against God. And, and, and you might say, well, why does it say they don't have 
and then what they do have is taken away from them. If they don't have anything, then how can you take away something from somebody who doesn't have anything? What they don't have is any works that give glory to God, any works that count for eternity. Why? Because they don't know Christ. They don't know Christ. When you don't know Christ, you, you invest nothing for eternity. Coming to Christ is the first step in investing in eternity. That's like opening the account, purchasing the CD or whatever, setting up your retirement fund. That's the beginning of it all. You don't do that, nothing counts. Second, we learned that those who invest in eternity for the glory of God will be given eternal rewards. This is just so mind-blowing. It would be like you going down to the bank with a penny. And you stick it in there and say, yeah, you know, I want to buy an eternal CD. And here's my penny. And it just produces trillions. Why? Because it's invested for eternity. And even though the very beginning at penny would have a very slight increase over the time, it would hit that magical, mathematical, exponential curve of multiplication. And it would produce for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension because it was invested in eternity. Believer, you need to set your eyes on eternity, not this world. It is so, so tempting, I know, to look at the world and look at the people. Oh, look at their car and look at their house and look at their clothes and look at their fame and look at their power. And and you can fall into this, you know, I wish I could just be like that God-hating person. You ever felt that way? I think we all have at times. It's like, you know, I mean, I'd like to be godly, but driving his Bugatti. The psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 73, verses 2 through 9. He says, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat, and they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high, they have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. And he's looking at them and goes, man, I almost slipped into that, man. I started envying those kind of people. I wanted to be like them. I wanted their prosperity. I wanted their pleasure. I wanted all the stuff that they had that was just bringing them just joy. And he envied the wicked until, verses 17, 20 through 20 say, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely. You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden tears like a dream. When one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And he goes, okay, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. He got a clue. He focused on the Lord and he got a clue and said, you know what? I shouldn't be envying those people who hate God. Yes, they have a momentary prosperity, but that's all they'll ever get for all eternity. And I may suffer, I may not get the promotion, I may be rejected, I may be scoffed at, I may be even burned at the stake, but I'm going to have glory and heavenly rewards forever and ever. Look at verse 27, and this is the scary part, where Jesus says, But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. He now refers back to those citizens 
who said, we do not want this man reigning over us. And they were all thinking in their minds, just like the Jews who went to Rome and said, we don't want this man reigning over us, speaking to Archelaus. And now Jesus says, yes, the citizens, the Jews who don't want me reigning over them, bring them here so I can look into their eyes with my eyes like flaming fire and have them executed in my presence. It is a grim scene of judgment because they have the scriptures. They know the prophecies. They know by looking at the scripture, who the Messiah was to be, where he was to be born, what tribe he was from, what he would do when he would come. They had all of that information. They had Jesus's miracles to testify. They had all of that verifying that he was the Messiah. And they said, we don't want this man reigning over us. And in five days, they'll all cry out for him to be crucified. Second Thessalonians 1 verses 8 through 10 says that when Christ returns, he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. He says, yes, there's going to be judgment for the wicked, but all the Christians are going to be going, yeah, they're all going to be marveling when Jesus comes. They're just going to go, oh, it's better than I hoped. It's better than I imagined. They're going to be so happy when their king returns after receiving the kingdom Sobering words to all who don't know Christ, encouraging words to all who do. Fourth and finally, do you feel the punch of the punchline here? Sherlock Holmes, the end of his investigation, would stand before Dr. Watson and, you know, Inspector Lestrade and other clueless people. And he would say, so, and then he would explain all the details of, of the mystery. And people would go, oh, 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 oh. So let's run through these. The situation which gave rise to the parable, a mixed group of people, true believers, professing believers who make no pre- and those who don't make any pretense to want Jesus to rule over them. Zacchaeus, one of the true believers and disciples of Jesus, declared that he will use his wealth for the glory of God, make restitution for wrongs. His love of money has been usurped by a new king, Christ, and he is now going to live and invest in eternity. Many of those present seeing the miracles of Jesus, the transformation of Zacchaeus, the healing of blind man Bartimaeus, and maybe other miracles are now ready for Jesus to march up there and become king. Most, though, for selfish reasons, they just want to get rid of Rome, not because they want Jesus ruling over them. That's the situation. Secondly, the nobleman represents Jesus who was there, present before them, who would end up leaving and returning in glory. Three, Jesus, after dying, being resurrected, ascended into heaven, will return to earth to establish his kingdom. Four, the slaves represent the two categories of professing believers, true believers who, knowing Christ and loving Christ, willingly invest for his glory and are rewarded afterwards when the king returns. And then a second category of professing slave who don't obey the master, don't want to obey the master, don't invest for the master, are called worthless and judged. Five, the mind is represent whatever God has given us to use for his glory, including our money. Six, the citizens who did not want the king reigning over them represent the Jews who rejected Jesus as their Messiah and cried out for his crucifixion. 
Seven, the bystanders, maybe angels, we can't be sure. Maybe slaves, we can't be sure. The citizens, eight, who did not want Christ reigning over them, um, are obviously the Jews and the worthless slave um, who pretended to be a follower of Christ but was not. These are judged. They're plundered of what they have and they're cast into hell. Nine, the citizens being slain in the presence of the king is a picture of the unbelieving Jews for sure who, having opposed Jesus as their Messiah, are brought before him and executed in his presence. Even though they had so much proof from the scriptures and from Jesus' miracles and words. And the parable is masterful because it encourages Zacchaeus and anyone like him. It encourages the disciples who truly love Jesus and are sacrificing. And like Peter said, we have left all to follow you. And they're all encouraged because they know they're getting a reward. It makes those who call themselves slaves, but don't obey Christ, stop to check whether they're really slaves or not whether they're really investing in eternity or not, or whether they're deceiving themselves because they get to heaven and they don't know Christ. They will be accounted worthless and judged. It is a warning to those who openly oppose Jesus and say, I don't want to live for Christ. and I don't want him reigning in my life. So we not need to make sure we don't get stuck in the past here. Because this parable is to every one of us here this morning. It, it addresses every single one of us. It is one of those broad sweep parables. First, the main lesson is you need to believe in Jesus Christ by faith so that you are saved and born again and transformed by his grace. So you have the grace of God working in your life and the Holy Spirit and dwelling in you so that you will want to do the second main point of the parable, which is invest in this life in eternal things. That, that is the punch of the parable. If you do the first, you will want to do the second because God's seed, the Holy Spirit, and his grace will be abiding in you. But if you have no desire to really invest in eternity and you want to do it because it's a duty, because it's a drudgery, because you have to, because you don't want to go to hell or any other reason, then you need to come to Christ. And even though the parable is so sobering, and especially the last word is just so sobering, Bring them here and slay them in my presence. You've got to step back here and see the grand picture of this whole thing. Jesus loves sinners. He's going to be dead in five days. And so he stands in this great multitude and he pleads with them. He has come to earth to die for them. He is giving this parable so that each person present will look at their life so they will be saved and not perish. He wants them to be saved. He longs for them to be saved. He's going to die that they might be saved. And we see from this parable his love for sinners, which means his love for you, for all of us. And that there will be no excuse to say, well, Lord, I didn't know. If you're in this room, you know now. And there will be no saying, but I was waiting until later. I didn't know I was going to get hit by a car and die so young. I was going to give my life to you later. I had good intentions. I was serving in church and I was, I mean, I, granted, I didn't really want you reigning over my life, but I did some good deeds. These things won't work. It's only by humbly submitting to Christ and believing that he died for you. 
accepting his love gift as a free gift of eternal life based off of what he has accomplished, not what you accomplish, that you will become the transformed person that desires to and is born along by the spirit to accomplish those investments in eternity, which God in the future will reward you for. And and that just always blows me away that, that God would say, okay, let me do something for you. I know you don't want to come to the light, lest your deeds should be exposed, but I am going to change your heart so you want to come to the light. And then you come to the light. And he says, now, by the way, I give you everything you have. I'm going away and I'm coming back. So live for my glory. And then when you take what he gives you and you use it for his glory, he comes back and say, okay, I gave you everything. I gave you every opportunity. I gave you the ability and the strength and the wisdom to invest for eternity. Now that you have done that by my grace, I'm going to reward you for all eternity. Think about it. Think about it. If you're not doing it, you need to look to Christ. Don't get reformed. Get Jesus and he will reform you. I want to end with a a poem written by C.T. Studd. There's a a phrase and you've probably heard it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You You heard that? Yeah, nobody knows who wrote that, but it's good, isn't it? And so he liked it and he decided, I'm, I'm going to write a little poem about that phrase. And so let me read it to you. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life till soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy our sorrow, thy will to keep faithful and true. Whatever be strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my life with fervor burn. And from the world, now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. For only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this text, a surprising text like many of the parables We think it's talking about money, but it's talking about everything. It's talking to each of us, 
saved and unsaved, deceived and clearly rebellious. It teaches us the importance of not procrastinating, of coming to Christ in faith, of receiving him as our Lord and Savior, to live for him as his slave, to submit our will to his will, to trust him as our king and to walk according to his commandments. Father, we pray that you would help us each to do that and increasingly more each day. Father, there's people here and I know there are who don't know you, who know about Jesus maybe, know that he is a savior, maybe even know the gospel. But when they look at their life, they're not living for you because they don't love you. They don't know Christ. They've never been born again. They've never been transformed by your grace. They don't have the Holy Spirit abiding in them, driving them, encouraging them, making them hunger and thirst for righteousness. Father, I pray that you would do that now. Make them cry out to Christ, believing in Christ, trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, that they might be born again and transformed into children of light who love you and want to serve you because you are a great and awesome king. Father, we pray all of these things and ask that you would help us use our lives in this world, like a vapor, to invest in eternal things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.